Uh, Brother Paul comes to us from uh, New York and uh, is the pastor there at a church. Um, what is the name of your church? Grace Christian Fellowship. Grace Christian Fellowship. Um, we've had uh, Sarah uh, Manhart with us for a number of, um, more than a year, I think. And um, this would be her home congregation. So it was a connection we didn't realize um, before they showed up and said, well, I know you. <laughs> um, so uh, Colossians 1, um, and I will read verses 15 through 29. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generation, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Lord bless you as you share. Good morning again. Glad to be with you again. Um, who was not here last evening? Okay, a number of you were not. I'm just trying to get a feel of if I refer to anything that I said last evening, who was here and who was not. So um, I'm Paul Kaufman again from upstate New York, uh, Church Grace Christian Fellowship. My family is with me, my wife, Susanna. We have four sons, the oldest 18, 16, 14, 11, and a young daughter who's four years old. So we're glad to be with you. And we're talking this morning about <clears throat> the missionary's message. Last evening, we talked about the missionary's mandate. And we know we have a mandate to go out. We know we have an obligation to go out in missions. But what gives the authority to that mandate is what the focus was last evening. I do thank those of you who prayed for me last evening as I was preaching. By the end of the message, I had almost lost my voice. I was losing it very rapidly. And when I went to bed last night, I told my wife, I don't think I'm going to have any voice left this morning. But I've got it back. So if you continue praying for me that I can make it through not only the first but the second this afternoon. If I lose it afterward, that's fine. Um, but I'd, I would like to get through. So the passage that uh, Brother James read this morning from Colossians, I wanted to focus especially on verse 27 about making known the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That mystery, the Bible talks about very, very much the mystery. The New Testament is replete with it. Uh, the Apostle Paul talks about the mystery known much. And I told the children in the children's class this morning, if you've got a cat and this cat lives in your house, you obviously don't want it to pursue its cat nature to its full extent. However, you can try all you want to train it to take on human characteristics. You can train it, maybe even successfully, 
to sit at a table and eat from a plate. I don't think with its paws you can get it to train it to eat with a spoon, but suppose you do. You can train this cat all you want until this cat is so well trained that you can invite me into your house and you can tell me, Paul, I train my cat. It no longer has a cat nature. It's got the same nature as my children. Well, suppose I have a mouse in my pocket and I pull it out and throw it in front of the cat. What's going to happen? You're all going to see the cat never lost its cat nature. Suppose I could tell you authoritatively that I am able to transform that cat for you into a complete different nature. You would look at me and you would say, that's a mystery, wouldn't you? How in the world are you ever going to take a cat with a cat nature and turn it into something redeemable? That is the mystery of the gospel. The gospel is called a mystery kept secret from the foundation of the world. The gospel was called a mystery because the angels in, in, uh, in heaven and the Old Testament prophets, they, heard, they saw God's promises of redemption and they asked themselves, how will God ever take fallen, sinful sons of Adam and make them fit for him? Yes, they can perform religious exercises, but what will they ever do? How will they they ever be fit for his presence with what is going on in their hearts, even if they are able to, through religious exercises, perform? They knew the holiness of God to an extent that we cannot know. They understood God's holiness. They understood that God is so holy that he cannot live in the presence of sin, sinful human beings. So it baffled them. How is this going to happen? How can he redeem sinful... (coughs) fall on sons of Adam and make them fit to live in his presence. And that was a mystery. And we're going to look at that this morning. We said, (coughs) we're going to look at the missionary's message would be the title of of the message this morning. And I'm convinced if I were to ask you, you would all agree that the gospel is our message, right? The gospel is the message. The gospel is what transcends cultures. The gospel is what goes from meeting the children right here in the church to the needs of the children here in church growing up. It meets the needs of your community in Harrisonburg and surrounding areas through the rest of the U.S. It meets the needs of the people living in Benin, West Africa, where we lived. And in all across the world, it, it transcends every culture and meets the needs of humankind because at its base, humans are all the same. Years ago, I remember reading in the... Uh, reading in the newspaper, there's a Hindu woman from down Memphis, Tennessee, and she was saying that, you know, all roads lead to God. It just, it just, it depends where you're coming from. Some people, when they want to come to Memphis, they take Interstate 40 East, some take Interstate 40 West, just depending where they're coming from. Do you know what she had wrong? And this is where we have to be careful with illustrations. Illustrations can be very deceptive if the premise is wrong. What was wrong with that illustration is the premise was wrong. She illustrated from the premise that we're all coming from different places. False premise. We have all had, on a micro level, we are coming from different places. But on the macro level, we're all in the same place, sold under sin, and need a same Savior. As I illustrated to a Muslim guy over in Africa once, I said, It's like we're all in this room, and there is a door, only one door here, and this room catches fire. On a micro level, we come to that door from different directions. God sometimes uses different methods to bring us to Christ, the door. But ultimately, we're all in the same room. We're all under the same condemnation, and all need the same door to escape. That is... We're not in different buildings using different doors. All of humanity is under sin. And therefore, this gospel message transcends all cultures. But the older I get, the more I realize the attack that the gospel message is continually under. I believe we are in a crisis today. It is a crisis of, on the one hand, easy believism. On the other hand, 
hard believism is what I would call it. Adding what G, uh, our works to what Jesus did. Be it's a reaction to easy believism, and I believe the reaction to easy believism that is going on rampantly today is just as bad or worse. I'm so glad that Jude, in his day, when he said they have turned the grace of God into lasciviousness, didn't say that the antidote to that is our works. I'm glad he didn't have certain last names of people who are promoting that as an antidote today. So, the missionary's message. Let's turn to Romans chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 16 and 17. <coughs> <clears throat> for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So the gospel, we would agree, is the missionary's message. But what is the gospel and what is the gospel not? is what we're going to be talking about, because this gospel is where the power of God resides and is able to transform lives and turn a cat with a cat nature into a son of God. And that's the gospel. And if we lose sight of what the gospel is, we lose the power. The power is in the gospel, not in anything else. And the further we stray from that gospel in either ditch, the more we lose the power and the more we are uh, the more we are forced to take that cat and try our best to train it into eating like humans do and the cat nature remains and today churches are full of people who cannot understand why this person or that person just cannot live above sin it's because they're trying to train them instead of leading them to the gospel that transforms them. I believe we're in a crisis today. And I believe it is a crisis that has been real for every generation of Christians at some time and place. And it is a crisis of the gospel being lost. People are being sent to the mission field with a dim view of the gospel. A lot of focus has been get out there and take the gospel to all the world, but they don't know the gospel. They're not familiar with it. They say, we're going to go out and teach the all things. The all things are not the gospel. Not everything in the Bible is gospel. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all nations that forget God is in the Bible and is frighteningly true, but it's not the gospel. The gospel is not what we do for God. The gospel is what he did for us. The gospel is not even necessarily what God is doing in our lives in transforming us more and more into the image of Christ. That is the result of the gospel. The gospel is what Christ did for us. It is history. It is, as I said last evening, God making a way for him to come to us. That's the gospel. And we better get this clear. Because if we don't get this clear, if we think that everything that is in the Bible is, the go is gospel, then we are going to be quoting scripture saying, and I've had that to me, that so-and-so is accursed because he's preaching another gospel and it was just a different understanding of some part of the Bible. And we better be careful because we can't go around and cursing everybody because they have a little bit of a different understanding of a passage in the Bible from what we do that has nothing to do with the gospel. I'm not saying it's not important to try to understand that, but all of us have at one time or another grown in our understanding of the Bible, right? Does that mean we were accursed before we understood that? When we had a wrong understanding? No. So understand, in fact, I will take it one step further. I do not believe repentance is the gospel, though it is a necessary prerequisite for the gospel. It is not the gospel. Repentance is what we do, and yes, God enables us to do it. Why do I say that? Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel, thus separating the two. Neither do I believe baptism is the gospel, though baptism is a necessary follow-up for experiencing the gospel. Why do I say that? 
the Apostle Paul said, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Thus again, making, uh, distinguishing between the two. So we can go out and we can tell a person to repent, repent, repent. And they can keep repenting and repenting and never believe the gospel and stay as lost as they ever were. We can baptize people all we want. They're not going to be saved if they don't believe the gospel. The gospel is good news that Jesus Christ has done to, uh, for us. It is good news to be believed and received. Um, so on the other hand, we have a reaction to cheap, grace, uh, to cheap grace so that the alternative is a gospel that is not the work of Christ. It is a gospel where the new birth is Christ empowering us to save ourselves, and that is found in statements like this. The gospel, and I read, this was written in a publication years ago. The gospel is God coming in, the new birth, it said, is God coming in and transforming us and empowering us to live for him. Then the good deeds we do that flow from that power is what saves us. In other words, the gospel is simply God empowering us to save ourselves. No. But you'd be surprised how widespread that thinking is. Let us not, in reaction to easy believism, complicate the gospel. The power is in the message. The power is in believing that gospel. The gospel is much, much more than the forgiveness of sins. And the gospel is much more than following the life of Christ. People say, follow the life of Christ. That's the gospel. In fact, I know one man who made the statement, the book of Romans is not needed. He said, the early church didn't have it. I'm sorry. He said, the early church, all they had was a life of Christ to imitate. And as they imitated him, they were mature in their Christian life. That's not true. Listen, the life of Christ, as lovely as it was, he could have lived that lovely life for a thousand years and not saved one poor sinner. It was his death, burial, and resurrection that saved. As noble as his life is to live, it's not the gospel. The gospel is called a mystery, as I said before, kept secret from the foundation of the world. This mystery was not, as some people say, I don't believe it was, as some people say, that the Jew and Gentile would be part of the same body, as it seems to indicate in Ephesians. In Ephesians, it's talk about uh, this mystery, the Jew and Gentile should be part of the same body. I believe what he was saying is because the Jew and Gentile are part of the same body as a result of this mystery being enacted. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, that our brother James read this morning, tells us what the mystery is. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Being in Christ was, is what Ephesians is all about. If you want to know what the theme of Ephesians is, it is in Christ, in him. In fact, the first three chapters alone in Ephesians Talk about in Christ, in whom, in him. Something along those lines nearly 30 times. That's the theme. The book of Ephesians, by the way, is who we are in him. And the book of Colossians is who he is in us. That's basically the difference in the two themes. When Christ died, his death became our death. When he was buried, his burial became our burial. And when he was resurrected, his resurrection became our resurrection. That's the gospel in a nutshell. That's the good news. He died, was buried, rose again. And because of that, what happened to him happened to us. And what happened to us, we get to experience everything that he experienced in that resurrection. After he after he resurrected, where did he go? He ascended on high, sat down at the right hand of God. We ascended with him. We are seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus, sitting at the right hand of God. Not to rest, but it's a position of authority that we have. All 
that is his as a result of his death, burial, and resurrection is ours. Now, the life of Christ and the way we live practically in this Christian life flows out of that, but, the God, but it's not the gospel. It is the result of the gospel. As a Christian, we are no longer sons of Adam. We are sons of God. We're not tied into Adam. We are a new race of humanity. The mystery kept secret from the foundation of the world is that when Christ died, we died with him. And Adam in us died. He was buried. We were buried with him. He rose again. We rose with him. Adam didn't rise. Christ rise. Christ now sits where Adam sat before. We have our human fleshly bodies that still have a drawing and temptations, but we are not bound to that thing like we were as unregenerate people because Christ replaced Adam and the curse of Adam was lost on us because Christ took its place. The mystery is that God would kill the cat and resurrect it into a complete new race into an absolutely brand new nature within. That's the mystery. The mystery wasn't that he is going to somehow, somehow um, just simply forgive the cat for its nature, but actually transform its nature where he writes our laws on our hearts. As Jeremiah says, <clears throat> The difference between the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant is the transformation that takes place in the New Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant, we talked about the conditionality of the Abrahamic Covenant. The New Covenant is a fulfillment of the Abrahamic Covenant, at least partial fulfillment. The Mosaic Covenant that God made at Mount Sinai with Israel when he made a covenant with them was conditioned on their obedience but it was not certain, as we talked about last evening with the Abrahamic covenant. It was not certain. It was conditioned on human performance, and they failed. Therefore, that covenant was annulled. And it was replaced with a new covenant. And so we had better understand that the power to live righteously comes from the free gift, not from trying harder as they did under the Mosaic covenant. I'd love to talk about the Mosaic Covenant more based on the first few chapters of Romans. But the end, God is not telling us, go in here and here is a highest standard of living. I want you to live for that. And then in the end, you're saved. It is a high standard that God says, I'll transform you so that you can do it. It's this way. For those of you who've been maybe in a third world country where there's still polio going around and you've seen a polio victim how many have seen a polio victim that's really hunched up, you know, and their bones are protruding, their shoulder is sometimes higher than their head? It's a painful to watch them try to walk. Go up to that polio victim and tell him, get up and walk straight. What's that? Is he going to be able to do that? No. That's the old covenant under Moses. Be holy. Walk holy. Why? God wanted them to try so they would see that they don't have what it takes. God wanted them to see their need of a Savior. So he told them, be ye holy, for I am holy. And they tried, and they tried. And at one point, God said, you know what your problem is? Your problem is, Moses told them, God has not given you a heart to know and understand and obey. You don't have that transformed heart yet. That's your problem. Also, Israel thought their, their problem was a lack of education. God said, all right, I'll give you your education. Here's what living God looks like. What was Israel's thing? All that the Lord has said we will do. What was God's response? Oh, that there were such a heart in them always. You see, you want your education? I'll give you your education. And they got excited and said, now we have our education. Now we can live for God. God says, we'll see. I know your heart better than you do. And they failed, and they failed, and they failed, and they got their education on human nature, the Adamic nature that they were born with. 
we, we tend to try to rationalize sin, rationalize our behavior, try so hard to transform ourselves. There was a man, I can't think of his name offhand, I, I would know it, but he lived several hundred years ago over in England somewhere. And as back in those days was common, he was a preacher, a godly preacher, but as was common in those days, they would have maids that would work in the house and get breakfast ready and all that. And he had one of these maids that would work, and he began to feel convicted that he should get up earlier in the morning than he was getting and seek the Lord. But his flesh didn't want it. So he couldn't discipline his flesh enough to do it. So he said, here's what I'll do. I'm going to tell my maid, hey, every morning at 4 o'clock or 5 o'clock, whenever it was, you come knock on my door and I'll get up. And any time I do not give up, get up, I will give you a gold sovereign. And I'll punish myself for not getting up by giving you a gold sovereign. And that will help me discipline my flesh. Well, the maid, she knocked on the door. Okay, time to get up. And he didn't want to get up. And he began to rationalize. He began to think, okay, I have to give her a gold sovereign. Then he began to think, you know what? This maid, she really is poor. She would be so blessed with a gold sovereign. Oh, okay. Went back to sleep. You see how that works? Now, that's a humorous story. We're not necessarily saying this is sin in and of itself. But we do the same with sin. We try to spiritualize it and say we're actually doing good deeds of service through this thing. And all it is is our flesh's inability to walk in the commandments of God. We're rationalizing it. That's not the gospel. That's not the transformation that God gives us. So a fallen son of Adam lives to gratify the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Here is what a fallen son of Adam looks like when he's trying to live out the Christian life. He's religious. He goes to church. He donates to missionaries. He helps the poor. He helps the orphans. He dresses in such a way as to not excite the lusts and passions of the world. He loves to even discuss the finer details of the Bible, eschatology, things like that. He reads the Bible, and he even prays. But he does not love those who oppose him. He does not have joy. He does not have peace when threatened. He does not suffer long. He is not patient. He won't allow others to walk over him. He doesn't have goodness, at least insofar as he holds animosity toward those who've challenged him. The fruit of the Spirit is missing in his life, in short. He li- in and he can't completely he can't live above sin, so he rationalizes sin. That is why, folks. Many times, the most religious people among us, the people who are the most threatened when some kind of outward form of their religion is threatened, are often the ones who are into the most perverted sexual sins. Mark it down. It's often the case. So often that I have come to the place that when I see somebody who is just consumed with certain outward religious aspects of things and is very threatened when anybody questions those, I begin to wonder what kind of moral failure is he living in? Because he's consumed with that kind of stuff. All his righteousness is as filthy rags because there is nothing life-giving in his good deeds. You know what that verse, filthy rags, is actually saying our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. A lot of people tend to look at that and say, and it's quoted very commonly today, people are saying that means all the things we do are to God as filthy rags. And even as Christians, trying to live for God and do, uh, do right is as filthy rags in God's eyes. That's not what it's saying. God created us to be able to live righteously. We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to love and to good works. What we do to please him is not filthy rags if we do it as regenerate people in loving response to him. What this verse is literally saying, it, you go back into your Hebrew, is simply all our own righteousnesses, 
are as menstrual rags. In other words, all our own attempts at producing life that is acceptable to God is dead because a seed of God is not in there producing life and it is rejected. Anytime we try to produce life on our own, it ends up that way. And anytime we try to live for God in an unregenerate state without the seed of God living within our hearts, God rejects it because there's nothing life-giving in it. It's nothing but dead, empty, lifeless religion. Anyway, let's turn to Romans chapter 5, and we're going to talk about this mystery and what it has done for us. We're going to read verses 12 through 21. This passage of Scripture, Romans 5, verses 12 through 21, is considered by many to be one of the hardest passages in the New Testament to understand. And I can see why. If you study this, it is very difficult to follow the reasoning. I am going to read it in the King James, and I'm going to expound on it in the ESV. Because I believe the ESV in this particular place makes it a little more clear. And I still use the King James because I grew up with it, and it's very, very hard for me to change. I'm very familiar with it. But there's some things, strengths, there's some places I like the King James better than the ESV, and other places I like the ESV better than the King James. But we're going to read it here, starting in verse 12. (coughs) Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed (coughs) Excuse me. when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, which is a figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses under justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign... (coughs) through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, why choose the theological over the practical? Why This is a very theological verse, and why should we preach out? Why not simply go out and tell a person, okay, just believe in Christ and now focus on how we should live? For number one, the practical is not the gospel. It's the outflow of the gospel, but it's not the gospel. There is nothing more practical for us to know than that God is for us and what he has done for us. Because as we realize what he has done for us and the gospel, we rest in that, and it is in returning and rest that we will be saved. It is in quietness and confidence that we walk in victory. You know how to live in victory? Rest in what he's done. I have seen so many people A few years ago, I taught through the book of Ephesians who we are in Christ. A young man was sitting there. He struggled and struggled and struggled with porn for years, couldn't get the victory. And his life was in shambles. And it was that week, it was all of a sudden, he said, the spiritual light, his eyes were open, and he saw who he was in Christ. And he said, the chains fell off. He walked away overnight. And it lost its grip on him. Why? Trying harder? No. Resting in the finished work of Christ and just accepting and embracing who he is in him. That's why we choose a theological. 
it is because the sufficiency of Christ's work is being undermined in our day that we choose a theological. It is because without the foundation of who we are in Christ, we will always live in defeat. The surest route to defeat is trying to harder to live the practical. The practical aspects of the New Testament are not meant to be lived outside of Christ's power flowing through us. And it happens when we put by faith, when we by faith embrace what he has done for us. Therefore, let's begin with this verse. And now the reason I chose this passage of scripture, I have listened to preachers preach through this. I've studied this passage of scripture. It's a little hard. I have differing thoughts on it. And so it's a combination. It's the conclusion I have come to that is the clearest, clearest in my mind what this passage 12 through 21 is teaching in Romans chapter 5. And we're going to go through it with the ESV now because I said I think the ESV is a little bit clearer in this passage in the King James and what it's saying. And the reason I'm doing it is this describes how God, the effect of this mystery in our lives. God transformed us from sons of Adam <coughs> into sons of God. Where Adam is not on the throne of our lives, Christ has replaced him if we are indeed in him. And the effect and the profound effect and position we have in him because of that and the transformative work it has done in our hearts because of that. We are not, yes, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, but that does not mean that we just continue to keep on living in sin because along with the imputation of that righteousness is an actual cleansing. As I said, this polio victim who is limping along and can't walk, and that's what the Old Testament was about, this New Testament thing is when the God, the surgeon, goes in and does surgery on that polio victim, straightens out every bone in his body, makes him completely whole, and he says, now walk straight. Why is he walking straight? Is he walking straight in order to be straight? Or is he walking straight because he is straight? He's walking straight because he is straight. The gospel is God has made us whole, therefore walk like it. And as he learns to walk, he will stumble at times. He can fall at times. He's learning to walk. But the problem is no longer that he's contorted and twisted up. The problem is he's learning to walk. He's been made whole. And the gospel and this passage of scripture is what God has done for us through Christ. He has made us whole. He has made us holy. And in the New Testament, though the Old Testament is full of be ye holy, the New Testament, I think, says at one time, that's in Peter where he's quoting the Old Testament. It basically says, but it says, walk in holiness. I have made you holy, therefore walk what you are. I've made you whole, walk. That's the message of the missionary. It's not to go to some heathen, unconverted son of Adam and tell him, this is God's will. This is how you're supposed to walk. Start walking this way and doing these things and you'll be saved. It is, you can't do this. I know you've tried. You can't do this. You need surgery. Come to God. He'll do that surgery in you. Then walk in freedom. And if you stumble, know this, God has made you whole. Just get up and keep going. It is the gospel message of a master surgeon who will transform that. And that's Romans 5. Verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. This passage of scripture endeavors to explain our bondage to sin and death. It gives the cause for the universality of sin. Why is sin universal? And this is an attempt to explain this. However, the main purpose of this passage is not to show the universality of sin. Paul seems to take for granted that the universality of sin and death is already understood by his listeners. His main objective here is to explain the atonement that he mentioned in verse 11. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Mankind as a whole knew and understood that something was terribly wrong with them. You go to Africa, where we've been way back in the most remote villages, they all know things are terribly wrong. They know things aren't right. I was way back in a village where they had never once heard 
the gospel or the name of Jesus. And they asked me to preach to them the gospel. And I began by asking them, do you know what it's like to go to bed at night and be afraid to die because you know you did wrong? They said, we all know what that's like. They'd never, uh, they knew the universality of sin and death, so they had never heard the word of God. So, having just mentioned that it was through, okay, mankind as a whole understood that something was terribly wrong, something was way out of whack with the human race. Why this propensity to sin? Why universal death? So, having just mentioned that it was through Christ that we received the atonement, the question arises, why do we need atonement? And just how does this atonement take place? And that is what these verses are addressing. And then he says that all the sin and wickedness and decay came about as a result of Adam's sin. In fact, Adam's sin brought death to the whole human race, he says in verse 12. When God told Adam, the day you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. And then Adam died Dying thou dost die, it would say in Hebrew. He died, I believe something within him died. He was cut off from the Spirit of God. And as I said last evening, man was never made to be an autonomous being, to live without the Spirit of God. When we talk about sinful nature, we mean at least this much. And I'll let the theologians hash out if it, how much deeper it goes than that, and I don't get too much into that. But we mean at least this. Our natural way we are made cannot live for God outside of the Spirit of God. Therefore, when the Spirit of God left mankind, he was left on his own, and left on his own and his natural makeup, he will fail consistently. It means at least that. <clears throat> In f um, then the Apostle Paul pauses at the end of verse 12. It is as if he anticipates a misunderstanding of his statement, for all have sinned. The next verses, verses 13 through 17, are in parentheses in the King James and a little hyphenated in the ESV. The King James Version, like I said, has it in parentheses. The ESV has a dash at the end of verse 12 to show that he is explaining more fully what he has just said. So verses 13 through 17 is explaining verse 12 the flow of thought goes from 12 through 18. So the verses in between 12 and 18 are to clarify what he said in verse 12, for that all have sinned. So we could read it this way, verses, go, read verse 12 and jump to 18. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. See, I skipped verses 13 through 17, because that 13 through 17 is where we're going to spend most of our, the rest of our time explaining verse 12, and the human problem and why the gospel is needed and why we better be clear on the gospel because if we're not, we lack the power to transform. Four, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Now, the question arises, and the Apostle Paul backed off. He had just said, for that all have sinned, because all sinned, maybe people will misunderstand what I'm saying. Does that mean because all committed individual acts of sin and that is why they died? Or did they somehow sin in Adam and that is why they all died? And this is a touchy subject. I realize I understand it's a touchy subject with many people. I'll tell you, and I wrestled through this thing for years ago, wrestled through this passage. And I will tell you, as honest as I know how to get what I think following flow, uh, thought to thought in this, and I'm always open for correction. If somebody can correct me from the word of God, what I think it is saying. I believe this is important to understand because the Apostle Paul is making a parallel between the first Adam and the last Adam, which is Christ. He is going to say that we receive Christ's righteousness in the same way we receive Adam's sin. If we received Adam's sin by experientially practicing sin on our own, 
then we receive Christ's righteousness by experientially practicing righteousness. He's making that parallel. It's the same way what happened in Adam happened to the new... As went Adam, went the whole race of humanity that was in Adam. As went Christ, went the whole race of humanity that was in Christ. Now, there are people who would love that interpretation. But the next verse refutes that interpretation. Let's stick with verse 13 for the moment. This verse is saying that before the law of Moses, everyone died. However, sin is not imputed where there is no law. So it seems to be teaching that although mankind was not condemned to hell for violating a law they had never heard, yet they all died for, because of Adam's sin, and somehow the effect of Adam's sin was on them. Okay, I think we can probably agree to that extent. They all died because of that. They may not have been condemned to hell. Sin is not imputed where there is no law, but they still died. And they died because of Adam's sin. So at some level, Adam's sin was imputed to his descendants. To what level? We won't go there. And I understand the debate. I don't know. But at some level it was. Even if nothing more than physical death. But I believe even the spiritual death, that, cut, that separation from the Spirit of God, came about as a result of Adam's sin. Later on in verse 19, Paul says that Adam's descendants were made sinners through Adam's sin. He says it explicitly in verse 19. So do we sin because we are sinners or are we sinners because we sin? Is the question. And we won't go into a lot of that this morning. But I'm trying to keep to the basic. At some level, we are suffering as a result of Adam's sin. So at some level, it was imputed. There is much discussion that often leads to confusion with these verses, so we're not going into it too deeply. But I think we'll stick with a few points that seem clear enough. Adam sinned, and because he sinned, we all were made sinners, verse 19. And because we all were made sinners, we all died. Although we were all made sinners, we were not accountable for sin that was committed in ignorance of the law of God. A baby is born with that natural proclivity to sin. It's not accountable if it doesn't know what God requires of that baby. And yet, that proclivity to sin, that nature within that just is bent, can't be held in check without the Spirit of God. And that came about as a result of Adam's sin. Yet, death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Although sin was not imputed to those who sinned in ignorance, yet everyone died, even those who had sinned in ignorance. I think that's what that verse is saying in verse 14. Why does verse 14 say from Adam to Moses? <clears throat> who were those who had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression? God had given an oral law command to Adam. Ye shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam violated an explicit oral command by God directly to Adam's ear. Later on, under Moses, Israel again heard an explicit oral law from God thunder directly to their ears from Mount Sinai. So when Israel disobeyed the law, they were violating an explicit oral law from God just as Adam had done. In between Adam and Moses, Paul is acknowledging many people lived who had not heard an explicit oral law of God. However, they all died too. And the question arises, why? And the answer is that to some degree, the sin of Adam was imputed to them, at least in that they had to die for it. That is why I said that this verse brings out that they did not die because of their personal experiential sins. Therefore, the righteousness of Christ is not our personal experiential righteousness either. <clears throat> However, just like personal experiential sin flows from our position as a sinner in Adam, so personal experiential righteousness flows out of our position as a righteous person in Christ. 
Now he says that Adam was a type of him who was to come. The one who was to come was Christ. So Adam was a type of Christ and Christ was the antitype of Adam. How was Adam a type of Christ? Adam was the head of the entire human race. What happened to Adam happened to all his descendants. In the same way, Christ is the head of an entire new race of people. What happened to Christ happened to all those who are a part of this new race. Adam's sin was passed to all his descendants to some level. That's clear enough from here. To what level? I don't know. So Christ's righteousness was passed to all his descendants who are birthed in him. There's a verse in Hebrews that brings this truth out. Hebrews 7 verse 9. And as I may so say, Levi also who receiveth tithes paid tithes in Abraham. Levi was given credit for having done what Abraham did hundreds of years before. Because Levi came out of Abraham. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. 7 verse 10. But let's go on to verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. The minor point of this passage is that Christ undid what Adam did to us. In Christ, we gained back what we lost in Adam. That's the minor point of the passage. However, the major point is that we received in what we received in Christ is much greater than what we lost in Adam. That's why the words much more. What Christ did at the cross gave us much more than what we lost in Adam. You see, Christ is like Adam in the sense that as the head of his new race of humanity, his gift affects his entire new race of humanity and all who have birthed in him. Like Adam, as the head of the human race, affected his entire race of humanity. But that's where the likeness ends. Now Paul tries to make the point that the effect of being in Christ is greater than the effect of being in Adam. We miss the point of this passage if we do not understand that the point of the passage is to highlight the, that the effect of Christ's work is greater than the effect of Adam's fall. After all, Adam was not seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus, where we are. <clears throat> At the right hand of God. Paul is not trying to say that before the fall, and I'm going to borrow an illustration I love from John Piper on this one. Paul is not trying to say that before the fall, man was at a number 10. When Adam fell, man fell to the number zero. Now in Christ, we are back at 10. That's not what he's saying. He is saying that in Adam, we were at 10. When Adam fell, humanity fell to zero. But in Christ, his people are at 10,000 and more. Note the words, much more. That's key. Those words are the key to unlocking verse 15. Paul is saying that the free gift, the gift of righteousness, verse 17, is much more than the trespass of Adam. But let's see the minor point of these three verses. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. It is found in the words of the one and the many. As the one man, Adam, was the cause of the many, all his descendants, being made sinners, so also the one man, Jesus Christ, will be the cause of all who are in Christ being made righteous and receiving eternal life. Many are in Adam, and so many die because of Adam's sin. The many who are in Christ receive eternal life and the gift of righteousness because of one man's grace. All who have received grace have received grace strictly because of one man's work. There's no other way to receive grace. There's no other way to salvation. Not all roads lead to God. Do you see the parallel he's drawing between Adam? Christ's righteousness affects his race like Adam's sin affected his race. 
Now to the words much more, we've looked at the parable. Now let's look at the contrast. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. If, sin, if death was certain because of sin, then life is much more certain because of righteousness. That's what I believe he's saying here. Paul is saying that the fruit of Christ's work is much more than the fruit of Adam's transgression. Death was certain, but life is much more certain. Why so? Because God's ultimate purpose in this universe is life, not death. We see this in verse 10. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That's his ultimate purpose. God planned to make a new humanity from before the foundation of the world. That was the mystery. That was a mystery kept secret from the foundation of the world. So God will certainly fulfill what his ultimate goal was before the foundation of the world. Death by sin is a backdrop to the certainty of life through grace. Verse 16, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Now here's another contrast to the free gift and the trespass. Again, the minor point here is that justification, which means being made righteous or being called, counted righteous, is a free gift. But the major point is a foundation for judgment and the foundation for the free gift. The major point of this passage is found in the word result, judgment following, and free gift following. There he's bringing out the contrast. Paul is here again showing how far Christ's work excels Adam's work. Don't lose sight of the main point of this message. It's the transformation and the new creation we are made in him. And how far superior the new creation is to even the original creation before the fall. He is comparing results. He is comparing cause and effect. He is saying that judgment followed one act of disobedience, but he is also saying that the free gift followed many acts of disobedience. Grace is greater than judgment because judgment is a natural and fitting response to sin. Judgment following, but grace is greater because of what precedes grace. Judgment is a natural and fitting response to sin, but grace is not the natural and fitting response to sin. If one act of disobedience results in condemnation as a natural and fitting response to sin, then the natural and fitting response to tr many transgressions is what? Much condemnation. If one act of disobedience leads to condemnation, then many acts of disobedience is much condemnation. So grace is greater than sin because sin is an unnatural starting point for grace. Grace not only had to overcome the natural condemnation to one sin, it had to overcome the natural much condemnation of many sins. Sin had multiplied exponentially since Adam's sin. <clears throat> Verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one, one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. He's saying, here is not an exact parallel. Because of sin, death reigned. We are servants. But because of grace, not only are we free, but we are now the ones reigning. Every Every thought in here is again showing how much greater this mystery that has been enacted, how much greater position we are in than we ever were even before the fall. Grace is greater, far greater than judgment. Why so? Because not only are we free from sin, but we reign as kings with Christ. We are seated at the right hand of God in Christ Jesus. We are not only free from Satan, we rule him. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. There's no other way of salvation. No one can be made righteous except through Christ's righteousness. 
any other attempts to create a righteousness in us will result in failure and a lack of victory over sin. That is why the harder you try through religious exercises, the more you fail. There are far too many people who are perpetually trying to make themselves holy. It always results in failure. This, though, is not teaching universalism. As it says, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. That's not teaching universalism that everybody will ultimately be saved. It is The context is those who are in Christ. All who are in Christ will experience these blessings. All men who are part of this new race of people. <clears throat> it is teaching that all who are in Adam were condemned because of Adam's transgression. So now all who are in Christ are saved by virtue of the fact that they are justified or made righteous in him. Verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The many who are in Adam were made sinners through Adam's sin. That's what it explicitly says. So the many who are in Christ are in Christ and made righteous through Christ. The same way. That's why I say it's not the experiential sin that made us sinners because it says right here, it is because you're in Adam that you were made a sinner in the same way because you're in him, you're you're made righteous. That's what's so beautiful to me. Ephesians 1 says he has made us accepted in the beloved. Do you know why God loves us? Not because of our moment-by-moment triumphs and failures. It's because we're in him. We're a new race of people. Righteous, holy in his sight. And he looks at us and sees Christ in us, the hope of glory. He sees us in him, I in them, they in me. As Jesus said in John 17, and he loves us. And he relates to us from a platform of love instead of condemnation. And when we fail, he still loves us and relates to us and restores us because of love. And that love is not because we failed or because we, or because we did not fail. It's because we're in him. This verse is saying, in him we're made righteous. <clears throat> now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So far in this passage, we find the word trespass when used in the singular to be referring to Adam's trespass. Adam's trespass was unique in that it was a violation of a known spoken word of the Lord. That was a kind of trespass that God wanted to increase through the law. I'm going to, incre- I'm going to bring a, a, a law so that people, this human heart that has this proclivity to nat- natural bent to sin, will know a law. And therefore sin in the same way that Adam sinned and Israel sinned with that known spoken law. Why? Because he wanted to increase it. Well, Paul had already stated in verse 13 that sin is not imputed where there is no law. Grace cannot be shown to somebody who is not under condemnation. So God entered the law in order to multiply sin. That is, he knew people would rebel against a law because of what was in their heart. So he said, all right, I'll just bring that aspect, that cat nature in them out. And then, when they experience condemnation because of it, then I can show them grace. He wanted the sin of Adam that was in them and that they did not know about to increase exponentially because that is where grace can be shown. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This chapter, verses 12 through 21, sounds like antinomianism. Antinomianism means against law. Or it's another word for Cheap grace, easy believism. It sounds like it, doesn't it? Grace, transformation, the gospel message, the mystery kept secret from the foundation of the world, when properly understood, can sound that way. Well, when partially understood, can sound that way, I should say. In fact, the Apostle Paul knew 
that, he, that what he was saying in chapter 5, verses 12 to 21 would sound that way. That is why he went into chapter 6 and said, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. And chapter 6 is all about the new man whom we are, who we are in Christ that doesn't, is not enslaved to sin anymore. And he goes on through chapter 6 and 7 saying the outflow of this wonderful news is not antinomianism. It's not easy believism. No, 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 no. But if verses 12 through 21 alone by themselves without chapter 6 and 7 don't at least somewhat sound that way, then we have not properly understood it. I listened to a couple Catholics debate, uh, uh, um, debate this, these 12 to 21. There is no way you could have gone from that and understood this 12 to 21 to be anything of cheap grace. It was all a works type thing. The way they did, but they were so messed up in their understanding of this chapter. So if to properly understand it, it can sound that way. And the Apostle Paul knew it sounded that way. That's why he wrote chapter 6 and 7, to correct that false thinking, complete the picture. So the gospel today is so simple. God took a fallen son of Adam and through his work, his righteousness made us righteous sons of a new race of people. And our news, our message for the fallen sons of Adam is not get up and walk and straighten out those polio bones in your body. The message is God will put you under surgery by joining you in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. He will heal you totally, make you holy, impute his righteousness to you, and now you can walk like Romans 6 teaches us. And you can walk that way because you are whole. God bless you.